Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. Definitely, this is not the hundredth show, but something like a hundred and four. You're with Give the People What They Want, coming to you from People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. Zoe and I, by the way, are in the great um, territory of Dongshengistan. I'm Vijay from Globe Trotter. Happy to be with you. Um, before we went on air, of course, we're following, tracking, in fact, the recent developments in South Africa, where Cyril Ramaphosa, president, under the scrutiny of all opposition parties for corruption, surprise, surprise, um, corruption uh, about the selling of a buffalo. Well, we'll have more on that story next week. Things are still in flux. Pedro Castillo of Peru also under the scanner in Peru. Not sure what's going to happen to his um, his position as head of government in Peru. Well, all that perhaps next week. Right now, things are in flux in both South Africa and in Peru. Um, we're going to go, as we often do, to the world of strikes, Strikistan. Um, Prashant, what's happening in the NHS, the National Health Service in the United Kingdom? Right. Uh, it's an interesting time at the, in the United Kingdom because we have strikes across all sectors. I mean, rail workers also have been continuously protesting. We had a recent video about uh, university workers who also uh, staged a protest. About 70,000 university workers were on protest in the UK. And now we have a mammoth series of strikes coming up in, uh, in the, of, uh, from the National Health Service. And it's interesting because it... It's, it's across sectors. So there's been widespread balloting of union members for the past month. Hundreds and thousands of you know, ambulance drivers, nurses, health professionals in, in various uh, subsectors, so to speak, being balloted. And throughout, I think throughout all these sections, a common understanding has emerged that there is, uh, you know, there's really no option but to go on strike. In fact, nurses are set to uh, walk out on December 15th and 20th. Ambulance drivers are you know, they've announced that they're going to go on strike and it is expected that there's going to be a coordinated action on December 20th. Now, you know, you might sort of wonder uh, what, especially during winter, it's, uh, uh, say, uh, it's it's around the time of Christmas. It's the kind of, you know, it's a time when already staff shortages often exist. And what forces health professionals, especially of a service, which is generally quite well known across the world, the NHS is often you know, seen as a model in many countries. So the real question is what forces these workers to go out to strike work at this point of time? And the answer is actually pretty simple coming from the fact that the government has been offering them just a pittance in terms of pay increases. It's as pretty much as basic as that. That's one aspect. The second aspect being the fact that vacancies you know, are not being filled. I believe the numbers for nurses, I think there's a, there's a 47,000 uh, 47,000 odd vacancies uh, for nurses alone in the NHS. And, uh, you know, the government led by the Conservatives, they just since for decades now, both the, both the Conservative and Labour parties have followed this trend of austerity and health workers are, are really saying it's, you know, we can't deal with this anymore because inflation is at 10%. We talked about it on the show before. There's been, uh, there have been reports that almost a decade's worth of wealth has been, people have been set back by a decade. Uh, especially the working class, you know, it's like you're back to 2008 or 10 again because all of what you worked for in 10 years is vanished because of the nature of the economic crisis. 
And I think there's some other shocking numbers as well. I think uh, last week about 200 people who died in the UK were uh, were due to because apparently due to delays in urgent and emergency care. So that's just another shocking number which shows that even ambulance services, emergency services, all being pushed to the brink because of the fact that the government is not <clears throat> just not willing to invest enough. And I think we talked about it again on the show before. This is after two years of COVID, after we've been through this entire, you know, uh, after we've been through this celebration of health workers, this uh, declaration of them as heroes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what we've seen is in country after country, governments have gone back to their business as usual. They've refused to provide the adequate funding for these health sectors and basically pushing workers to say that you have no other option but to come uh, go on strike at this point of time. So very depressing and difficult time for uh, most UK health workers. And I think the government's approach in recent budgets, we know the kind of chaos the Conservative government is going through. And throughout this chaos, what all contenders have promised or continue to promise is that we will stick to conservative values, which means keep cutting down uh, spending, keep, you know, continue with your austerity policies and somehow hope that uh, this discredited trickle down will solve everything. So that's where the workers are at. So I think this month is going to be very, very crucial this month in January as well, because throughout across these sectors, we're going to see one of the probably one of the biggest waves of strikes in the NHS in many, many years. Strikes in the UK. Well, there have been previously those rail strikes, as you said, very serious strikes conducted by the Transport Workers Union, very brave they continued rolling strikes, strikes not only in um, the UK, across the Atlantic. Looks like the United States, another wave of strikes. What's happening, Zoe? Well, it's an interesting situation. Um, as we know, the transportation sector is an extremely crucial sector. And even though the U.S. is one of the countries with you know, not many uh, passenger railroads, of course, railways are still extremely crucial to the economy, so much so that Joe Biden actually pressured the U.S. Congress to pass uh, legislation blocking a rail workers strike. Um, and it's interesting the way that they came about this because uh, they said that they want to make sure the economy is not affected by potential rail workers strike. And what is it that the rail workers were fighting for? Well, actually, they were fighting for the right to sick to paid sick leave, um, which is really should be a fundamental right of all workers. Um, and because they were not given they were not given the offer of, uh, you know, paid uh, sick time in these negotiations that they've been in uh, with the union and the rail worker companies. Um, they said that they were going to take industrial action if this demand was not considered. And instead of, uh, you know, considering the, the offer that was made for seven paid sick uh, leave days, uh, Joe Biden and Democrats actually push forward legislation that would give that would force them to accept a deal that had none of this rights respected. Interestingly enough, some Republicans voted against this. Um, and really, I think it's just a testament to show that the, the Democratic Party in this in this case is really just showing its true colors. And it's the fact that it's at the end of the day on the side of big capital, not supporting workers' rights. And in all, um, you know, you would think that especially after the pandemic, the right to have time off when you're sick, to take care of yourself, to not infect your other workers should be, you know, at this point, common sense. But no, of course, it is not. Um, and an interesting point is that also a, a poll was conducted 
um, around uh, this rail workers strike. And it actually showed that about uh, a majority of Americans actually support workers, rail workers uh, prioritizing their rights over economic growth and that they did not approve of the intervention of Congress. So I think this is really important to point out. A lot of times people talk about the conservative uh, U.S. society, that you know there's low levels of unionization, but actually there's a lot of support for workers getting their rights. There's growing support for the recognition of what are labor rights in a country that has kind of completely stripped down this concept of having these uh, labor rights. So I think this is a really crucial moment. A lot of people extremely fed up with Joe Biden, who once time and again, uh, is not fulfilling his promises, is talking about supporting workers, but not actually doing anything. Of course, they just won these, uh, you know, s slim victory in the midterm elections, defeating the Republicans really on a discourse of we're not the extreme right. Um, but at the end of the day, they clearly have nothing to offer the working class. And that I think is really evident in this uh, rail workers dispute. And we're going to, of course, be following this. Natalia Marquez has been writing these updates giving the on-the-ground look? Well, you know, it's interesting that um, when you think about the rail worker strike or the NHS strike, underneath all that is a cost-of-living crisis that has hit workers around the world. Very stunning story reported on BBC uh, website. Now, I, I must admit that I don't often go running to BBC to get my news, but this story caught my eye. It was about how in the city of Cardiff, which is the capital of Wales, people are beginning to buy pet food as a substitute for other kinds of food because the price of food has gone up. Well, I took a look at the ILO, the um, International Labor Organization's very important global wage report 2022-2023, just out with the very strong um, subtitle of the impact of inflation and COVID-19 on wages and purchasing power. Now, I understand many of you are not going to go running to the ILO website to go and read um, their report. Uh, truth be told, it's rather dull. There's a lot of statistical detail. It's difficult to get through um, the banner numbers to see what the important points are. Well, here, here's a banner number for you. Um, they look at global monthly wages and they show that they fell in real terms. Now you're scratching your head and saying, what does all this mean? Here's the number. It's minus 0.9% in the first half of 2022. That doesn't really inform you about anything. But here's what the ILO says. It's the first time this century that real global wage growth, growth has gone negative. Okay. If, if you don't really follow all the numbers, I think the, the analysis is itself stunning. It's the first time in this century, the 21st century, that real global wage growth has gone negative. Looking deeper into the numbers, looking at some regional differences, it's pretty striking. In the European Union, um, where there's a large social welfare sector to protect people who have lost their jobs, you know, through, um, for instance, job retention schemes, wage subsidies, and so on. Um, there's been an increase in real wages to 1.3% in 2021, but it declined to minus 2.4% in the first half of 2022. That means in Europe, 
um, they saw some increase in 2021, largely because some people began to imagine the pandemic is over. Well, just as um, the point came when the pandemic was over, when some supply bottlenecks <laughs> from Asia and other manufacturing uh, centers in the world began to um, slow down, you had, of course, the conflict in Ukraine, which is a contributing factor to this. But there are older drags on the economies in Europe. So Europe faced a 2.4% decline. Uh, that's significant. China, for instance, the other end of the world from Europe, um, didn't see such a catastrophic collapse. Real, real wage growth increased, in, 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 in fact, but much less than it had increased in the previous year. So they had a modest increase, um, not the kind of drop you saw in Europe. One more example that might be interesting to people. Um, in Africa, there was a fall in real wage growth to minus 1.4% in 2021. Already before the war in Ukraine, there was a real decline in real wage. But it slowed even further to 2.5% in the first half of 2022. It's a pretty important report from the International Labour Organization because what it's showing is that not only are social services being cut in most countries around the world, that means governments are deciding um, to slow down on the various stimulus packages that they had provided during the pandemic and also slowing down or cutting other social welfare programs, uh, partly because the tax base seems to be not as favorable as it was in the pre-pandemic period. So, so not only are governments cutting on social welfare spending, um, not only are prices going up on basic goods, you know, for instance, on fuel and food and so on, including rents, there's a secular increase in prices that has been pushed upward by the, let's call it the Ukraine a bump, uh, you know, for many prices, largely because there's also kind of insecurity in the markets about how to price things. So there's upward pressure on a lot of prices. Prices are going up, social payments are going down, and then wages have collapsed. So I think this IMF report is very significant. It shows effectively that in most countries in the world, apart from China, um, real wages have declined. And as they show, the aggregate number is this is the largest wage decline this century. Very little reporting on this. You know, it's important that we pay attention to this. This is what's called the scissor squeeze. People are being sliced by scissors in a way. On the one side, prices are going up. On the other side, um, incomes or wages are going down. So both ends of it, most working people around the world hit very, very hard. No wonder they're on strike at the NHS. No wonder they're on strike in the railways. Um, these three stories, all of a piece. You're listening to Give the People What They Want, brought to you by People's Dispatch, your favorite website, and Globetrotter. Make sure um, you, know, you go and read People's Dispatch for many of these stories. We cover most of the important stories of our time. One of them, of course, is the imprisonment of Julian Assange, a very important story, it reflects on the press freedoms or unfreedoms that we have in many parts of the world. Every few months, one reads more stories about journalists being picked up. But the banner story here, Julian Assange. Prashant, what's happening with Mr. Assange? Well, oh, Zoe, sorry, <laughs> sorry. So, 
Julian Assange, as we know, as we've been covering at People's Dispatch, is currently amid an extradition trial in the United Kingdom. He's been held at Belmarsh Prison since April uh, 2019. Awaiting this trial in the U.S., he's facing charges, which could uh, lead up to sentence of 175 years. And in the last week, there's actually been kind of an upswell of support uh, in the support of Julian Assange. And this has come from many different areas of sectors of life, different countries. Um, right now, the editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks and the ambassador of WikiLeaks are on a tour of Latin America um, to rally support behind WikiLeaks and also Julian Assange calling for his freedom. Uh, they went to Colombia. They met with Gustavo Petro, the president, uh, who has been a real a shining voice on a lot of the, the key issues of our time. We've talked a lot about what he said on the environment and uh, his support for Cuba, support for peace. And again, on Julian Assange, he's outrightly called for the U.S. to drop the charges and said that he should not be extradited and that he does this persecution against him does represent persecution of the freedom of the press. So this is a, extremely important. Then from Colombia, they went to Brazil where they met with uh, Lula da Silva, they met with many different popular movements, all of whom gave this outright support um, for Julian Assange, calling, his for, calling for his release, planning on what actions can be taken in the next period to really put pressure on the United States to drop the charges, um, tell the United Kingdom to not extradite him. This is really crucial. And at the same time, we also have seen that the Australian prime minister announced to parliament that they have been engaged in negotiations uh, calling for his release calling for the U.S. to drop the charges. And not only that, but a group of media outlets, including the New York Times, including the Guardian, Le Monde, uh, high-level newspapers. We at People's Dispatch and many of our partner organizations have for years been calling for his release. You know, we're independent journalists, independent outlets. We understand uh, the significance of Julian Assange. And actually, a lot of these newspapers that I mentioned, these big media outlets, were some of the first outlets that actually published the leaks from WikiLeaks, published the information that they were able to uncover. And they, and they had really been silent about his persecution. They had not taken up this cause of the freedom of press and all of this, which his case represents. However, this week, they actually took a stand and said that calling for his calling for the charges to be dropped, highlighting what this means for freedom of press across the world. And so this is cannot be understated. These are huge media houses that have a lot of impact in the world. Um, Australian prime minister, two heads of state, Lula, who's an incoming head of state, Gustavo Petro. This is, this is showing a real shift and showing that actually this international pressure could be key. Will it be enough for the U.S. Justice Department to actually drop these charges, that remains to be seen. Will it be enough um, for the U.K. Home Office to decide to not extradite Julian Assange? That, again, remains to be seen. But I think it's quite impressive to see the response from the international community and also see that the U.S. does not have hegemony, does not have a united front on this issue, and that there are cracks in what seems like a united uh, support and unanimous support behind its persecution of these uh, different people. And um, I think it really also shows us the importance of organizing and especially the efforts that we've been taking on with different media outlets to really continue mobilizing for this. That's Julian Assange, who is an Australian national. Interesting that 
the Prime Minister of Australia, Mr. Albanese, has said, release Julian Assange. The Australian government just cut a deal with the United States to spend a billion dollars to expand Tyndall Air Base and the Pine Gap Intelligence uh, Center. Six B-52 U.S. bombers are going to be stationed at Tyndall. Contradictory world. Same time as Australia is doing that, Albanese says, well, maybe my national needs to, after all these years, listen to somebody from his government. Um, yes, media houses like People's Dispatch, Globetrotter, and we've been banging the drum. Well, People's Dispatch and Globetrotter, we do this show together, give the people what they want. We also do a lot of journalism together on the People's Dispatch website. Wonderful story by Tanu Priya, produced by People's Dispatch on Globe and Globetrotter. On the situation in Pakistan, boy, has the world already forgotten the floods, Prashant? Right. Uh, I mean, that it's uh, multiple issues, of course, in Pakistan in recent times. The story talk, does a very uh, good, uh, you know, gives a very comprehensive picture of how the floods have continued to affect the country. And often, what happens is a disaster of this kind. It stays on the it stays in the news for a while, and then it kind of vanishes because. With climate change, you're seeing more and more of these disasters. But what is often difficult to calculate is the fact that the impact is enduring. It goes on for months. It affects, you know, it destroys health system. It affects nutrition. Uh, say an entire generation in some regions gets affected. It takes years before people are able to get back onto their feet. And I think that's one of the key aspects which, uh, in fact, even led to the discussion on loss and damage during COP27 as well, because that was really the key question that, you know, when such kind of disasters happen, where, how long does a country have to go with a begging bowl uh, for the money to actually deal with some of these uh, disasters? But also other developments happening in Pakistan as well, which is interesting because uh, on the one hand, kind of tragic as well, because on the one hand, we saw that uh, the Tehreek-e Taliban in Pakistan, which is, uh, you know, closely in some senses associated with the Afghan Taliban, but operates strongly in Pakistan, broke its ceasefire with the government at this point of time. There was an attack, uh, a tragic attack on a polio vaccination team in which three people were killed, including a police, uh, you know, a, 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 a policeman, a woman and a child. And uh, in this region where the attack happened, it's significant that <clears throat> polio immunization drives are often cast as some kind of Western conspiracy. And, you know, there have been a number of attacks on teams which do that. But the larger picture here, of course, also is of the fact that the collapse of the ceasefire brings another period of great uncertainty as far as Pakistan is concerned, because we've already seen... Uh, Pakistan has had a very, very difficult year, let's be clear about them. I mean, we saw the, over the past year, the economic crisis really going to new heights, inflation, you know, really strangling uh, people. Then the floods came about and now we have uh, the, the end of the ceasefire, which was anyway very tenuous. Let's be very clear about it. It was a very tenuous ceasefire, but the end of the ceasefire is expected to lead to more violence. We know that the <clears throat> Pakistani Minister of State for Foreign Affairs went to Afghanistan. They had a meeting <clears throat> with the Taliban over there. But the key question remains that how exactly are these issues going to be resolved? There's no real answer to it. So do, are we going to see more attacks happening in the near future? That's probably, unfortunately, what we're going to see as well. So difficult times for the people of Pakistan. Difficult times for the people of Pakistan, in, inclusive, of course, of the fact that cascading crises, you know, that's what people have been saying around the world about so many of the crises, climate crisis, economic crisis, 
political crisis and so on. Uh, Pakistan epicenter of all this, no doubt about that. You know, I've been writing a lot about the situation in the Sahel region in Mali, for instance, where um, there's been a serious conflict uh, around an insurgency in northern Mali, provoked perhaps to some extent by the NATO a French-driven war in against Libya, uh, that war which then takes over uh, about half of the northern landmass of Mali. Terrible situation for the people. The French intervened in Operation Barkhane 2013. Now, two military coups later, the French have been removed. Uh, just this last week, I'd, I'd mentioned that in Mali, there was a conflict over overseas development aid that France was providing Mali. French decided to cancel that, saying that, oh, this has to do with, um, you know, the Russian intervention into Mali. By Russian, they meant the Wagner group, this uh, group of mercenaries and so on. Well, the um, Malian government, the military government decided that no French NGOs can operate again in Mali. Lots of people looking at this were saying, well, this is now a defeat of the French, removed from Mali, removed from Burkina Faso, under pressure in Morocco, in many parts of the Sahel, including in Niger, where there are protests in Algeria and so on. Okay, looks like, looked like, in a way, the Europeans were being pushed out of that belt of Africa. And then comes the news, and this is interesting. Then comes the news in the British Parliament uh, that the British troops are perhaps entering the area. Little background here. In 2017, um, countries in West Africa met in Accra, Ghana, and they set up something called the Accra Initiative. Now, it's important to realize there is a serious problem of insurgency in many of these countries. About 100 kilometers into the territory of Ghana, um, in the north, has been essentially not taken over, but eroded uh, from the um, the Ghanaian government and various jihadi groups have entered the country. This poses some challenges for the government because these are, whatever their um, ideological orientation, jihadi or not jihadi or purely opportunistic, they are nonetheless a non-state actor, which is creating quite a serious um, you know, problem for the governments, in fact, for the people of the region as well. Um, so the Accra initiative was set up in 2017 as a way to deal with some of these particular problems. In the British Parliament, just about 10 days ago, Under Secretary of uh, State for Foreign Affairs, James Hederby, made a comment to the Parliament saying that Britain is strengthening its role in, in the Accra initiative. Uh, surprise to many people in Ghana that this was the case. And Hedabi said that British troops were going to enter Ghana. Again, important to remember, I'd done a story for Globetrotter and People's Dispatch published it about how an entire terminal at Accra International Airport had been taken over by the U.S. government. In fact, one of the things I learned for that story is when U.S. troops arrive in Accra, they don't have to show anybody their passport. They walk right into the country. It's an entirely bizarre situation where foreigners are able to enter the country. Even diplomats have to actually stand in a queue and show their passports to a passport official, but not so U.S. troops. Interesting development. Well, we know that uh, at the time when we had uh, talked to Kwesi Pratt Jr. and others and, and talked about this story, the government in Ghana denied it, saying, no, no, it's not true. Um, there is no U.S. 
a base at the airport. There's no U.S. presence. And then, as the fact showed, they had to retract that denial. In this case, when Hedabi said that there are British troops um, entering Ghana to shore up the Accra initiative, again, the Ghanaian government said, no, no, this is not true. There are no British troops and so on. Looks like the Ghanaian government for a second time is trying to dissimulate reality. In fact, most likely there are British troops in Ghana. Now, what's the link between the Accra initiative, British troops in Ghana and the situation in Mali? But here's the, the link. The United States has been very active in the Sahel region, has bases in Niger, has bases in, in Mauritania, not bases as such, but um, you know various kind of launch pad locations in Mauritania. But the base in Niger is the largest drone base in the world. And they've been using the Accra airport as a way to resupply U.S. forces in the Sahel. Now that the British are also involved, it looks like the British and the United States are trying to supplant the French in that region. A dangerous developments, absolutely underreported in the world press. Equally underreported is the fact that in Morocco, there's been tension between France and the Moroccan government. And at the same time, the Moroccan government has tightened its links to the United States. Links that had been already pretty tight with the Abraham Initiative. Remember that when Morocco said it would so-called normalize relations with, um, with Israel. So, and then the Israelis and the world community would then recognize Western Sahara as part of Morocco. Well, looks like in Morocco as well, U.S. military in the saddle. France getting pushed out, the United Kingdom and the United States right there to take over from them. This is not necessarily a major change in the Sahel. might just be a change of who is the colonial power or the neo-colonial power in the region. Um, we'll be covering this story uh, much more as we've covered all our stories. Um, you always give the people what they want from People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. See you next week. I think it's show number 105. Share over.